Welcome to Untangling Christianity, episode number six. On this show, John and Greg attempt to diffuse destructive ideologies, unsnarl confused ideas, and discover the treasure in Christianity. This week, we're discussing chapter two in Not a Fan by Kyle Uddeman. That chapter is titled, A Decision or a Commitment. We hope you'll join in that conversation. You can be part of it by leaving a comment at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash six. You'll also find related notes and links for this episode at the same place. Talking about the book with another person the other day, and we were kind of thinking out loud about who the audience for this book is. And... It seems to me that the the purpose of this, and even I guess maybe the meeting with Nicodemus, it's all about, um, it seems that this message is for people that are not taking Christianity seriously enough, or in the author's eyes, yeah, and not seriously enough. I just keep wondering if there's a better way to get to that message. I mean, the whole thing with Nicodemus here is, you know, Nicodemus is, is essentially a fan, but not a follower, because he comes to Jesus at night, and... I, as I've read and done a little bit of research, it seems way too simplistic. So I want to dig into that a little bit more. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I don't know. Any, any, does that, does that do anything for you? Yeah, I mean, that's, that's kind of like, I only, I I didn't even get through the whole chapter. I, I stopped and I was really kind of, I don't know. I thought, you know, why am I feeling uncomfortable? Is it his word choice? Or is it more than that? But, but you know, this is, this is, there's a, there's a couple of contradictions here that I think are, are, are really deep and they probably tie into some of the earlier ones. And I, I don't mean that, 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 you know, the author's not sincere and not, you know, trying to do what he says he's trying to do. But, you know, he starts out with this thing on Nicodemus and, uh, he, he, he he's, he's, he's all over this kind of idea of Nicodemus was, was inspired, you know, in the first, paragraph in um, chapter two he says you know he he couldn't help but be inspired and uh, it wasn't just the miracles and the power it was his compassion and his love and and then he's got at the last sentence in the second paragraph of that first page page 29 says, being a secret admirer of jesus cost him nothing but being a follower came with a high price tag and, and I guess, I guess the, the thing that, that I find just, it just does not fit. It does not fit. Like you can, you can think that being in relationship with God offers you advantages. You know, uh, I, I, I don't know. Being in a, a, a church gives you like a ready-made network of people you can interface with who can help you, I don't know, shingle your roof or give you tips on who a good mechanic is or you, whatever, you know, people you can hang out with. Um, but this idea of being touched by God's love, and yet not that not costing him anything in his current state, I, I think is 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 kind of ludicrous. Because I mean, love doesn't work that way. There's always a cost. If if we're touched, you know, if if we're touched by personal gain or anything, those I don't even think touched is the right way of expressing it. Um, that's something you can kind of walk into and walk out of. You make a deal with. You don't make a deal with love. I think, you know, words sometimes lead us astray, but sometimes they very well capture a situation. And I think, at least in terms of love, in the English language, we do pretty well. We fall into love. 
You know, we are tripped up by it. It's something that overcomes us. And it's something that um, we are, that's magnetic, that compels us. And so this idea that even even doing what he's doing, it's not it's not costing, you know, he can be this sort of secret admirer, if you like, or be inspired. I, I, I think that's really problematic on the one hand. On the other hand, I think that there's a, just this, I don't know, like the next page over, he's got like, uh, you know, I think it's kind of on the one hand, it's, it's kind of cool. But on page 31, the very top, he leaves a paragraph size section. You know, maybe, let me pull out my ruler. Like, like almost two inches blank. Oh, that yeah, that big. Yeah, actually, I wrote some notes in that blank. <laughs> yeah, you know, and it, it's 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 for us. It's for the reader to write in, and the the line before it that tells you what to do with the space as how has following Jesus interfered with your life. Oh, then that's a huge trigger for me. The interferer, like that's a major. No, he uses. Yeah. I think it's an interesting word choice. Mm. Like it's a negative. It has a very negative connotation. Mm. It's not how has Jesus revolutionized your life or how has he blessed your life. It's interfere. I mean, interfere has a negative connotation to me, mm-hmm. and it's also. I heard this in a couple of other podcasts and and things that I've read and kind of heard in my whole Christian experience was this, which is this notion of Jesus as the great interferer, <laughs> Jesus as the like bull in the China closet, you know, you know, the, you know, the old uh, Schlitz commercial where that bull's like wandering through the China shop. And I don't know what that has to do with beer, but it's this notion of, and, 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 and evangelical Christianity loves irony, irony. It's this notion of, you know, are you going to let this, you know, bull into your china closet and he's going to like break all the glass? But when he does, you will be so glad he did because your life will be better for it. <laughs> yeah. And so this whole this interferer, Jesus is the grand interferer. He uses that word in this chapter several places mm-hmm. and I'm not I don't think it's unique to him. I don't think he's created this construct, but it's a very familiar construct and yeah, it's if yeah. Yeah, and this idea of negative implications. Well, I, I I think this is where I started to get really uncomfortable, because you know, well, what can I, we back up a little bit? Yeah, though? sure. Like, like what I my first question though is is, and maybe we're maybe we're going too deep and not, and trying to pick apart his message. But I'm even questioning why Nicodemus, like this whole construct that that Nicodemus was a fan and that he's sneaking around and all that. Mm-hmm. Uh, w- one interesting comment from the commentary I was reading was there's no reason given for why Nicodemus comes at night. Hmm. Now I can remember like it was yesterday. I was probably like four or five in Sunday school hearing the the story of Nicodemus and how, you know, Nicodemus was sneaking around and he came to Jesus at night and, um, cause he had these questions and he didn't want anybody to know that he had these questions. So he came to Jesus at night. But what dawned on me is I, as this commentary suggests is we just don't know why he came at night. Mm-hmm. Um, John doesn't say Jesus doesn't Jesus. What I think is even more ironic is Jesus doesn't say, you know, mm-hmm. dude, why didn't you come to me during the day when you could have talked to me? I was available. Like, there's no addressing of that whatsoever. Mm-hmm. So, um, I don't know. Is that a valid 
question to even ask? Does that blow this whole thing apart? Is that being too cynical? I don't know. What? I don't know. Like I've heard the same. I, I, I don't think I've looked as deeply into it as you have actually in terms of uh, figuring out. I'm just looking over on my, 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 my bookshelf and I don't have anything on John specifically. So I've heard the same old thing. Maybe it's not the same old thing, but I've heard the same thing that coming at night was, you know, the time for, for these types of discussions was not at night. So there's something odd. And I have heard, you know, one of the things about uh, Hebrew literature, and particularly they're talking about the Old Testament, but I think it has some application in the New, is that um, it, it's, it's typically very sparse. And, and if you find a detail thrown in there, it's often significant. So the ah, so the fact that so the fact that there's a there's the detail there about what time of day he came we, would have been significant. Yeah, is significant. Okay, could have could have been. Yeah. So I mean, I'm happy to kind of go with that until I've got more information that says, eh, you know, we we had lots of these discussions take place at night and such. Um, but you you might be right. I don't know. I'm just kind of leaving it up in the air. So I don't know about the whole you know validity of. Nicodemus and the coming at night thing. I guess what what uh, on the interfering thing and on the he also talks about negative implications. Yeah, and go back to the thought that you were going to fill out too hmm. about the the really troubling part, and then because I kind of took us backwards, so let's sure. go back forward where yeah. you wanted to go. No, no, good. Yeah, well, I, my my thought there was you know this notion of cost and denial. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, this is the crazy thing. Right? It's just, just as you said, as opposed to how has Jesus enriched or revolutionized my life, you know, uh, Christianity is not a call to masochism. God is not a sadist. You know, and this leads, this, this opens the door on tons of other questions, like the question of hell and all these other things. But, but if we can kind of bracket those out, I mean, this very notion of, uh, cost and denial, you know, basically it's going to cost you something. God's going to interfere, and you're going to have to let him, because, you know, you don't have to, right? So you have to make that choice. But there's always, and this is what I, it strikes me, it's always set within a preceding and a greater context of giving me something, of fulfilling me in some way. So in other words, you will you will give this up, or this will hurt, but the benefit will be this. See, I don't even, I don't even think nope. that the, uh, I don't know, like, does it... Does it does it hurt when when okay you, you right you have Ethan you've lost a lot of time to Ethan right Ethan's taken a lot of time that it, before Ethan came your son came along you wouldn't have had you would have had to yourself or you could have done it whatever you wanted with it and now you are bound by that just like my daughters have taken a lot of time from me do I regret that no <laughs> right <laughs> because I'm in love with them. You know, when you when you fall in love with somebody, they change your world and they change your life. And, and and so, you know, you've got to give these things up. You know, in quotation marks, you give them up. And sometimes you do, you know, when it's not going well, you're like, ah, crap, this is so annoying. Like, look at me. This is this is the third time at, at, at 3 a.m. in the night, in the middle of the night, and I'm totally, like, exhausted and work's going to suck again, like, really bad enough at this big meeting tomorrow and blah, blah. And you kind of think to yourself, you know, gee, I really wish... Or I kind of really wish, but at the end of the day, you don't really wish. You're glad for the for the that that really wonderful, unique, special relationship that you have. And and I'm not trying to turn it all back to something emotional, 
But on the other hand, I, I think there's an emotional pitch going on here, which doesn't make sense. He's kind of disembodied it, or he's put the cart before the horse completely by suggesting that, you know, all about interfering. And then, and then the thing that really gets me, and that that's, this is why I stopped. It's like, no, I'm not going any further with this. This is huge. Because he's then, he's got, okay, uh, so he's got this little, uh, you know, his section at the top of page 31. It's blank for you to write in how Jesus interfered with your life. I mean, my... So what did you write there? My, I wrote three words. Too little space. <laughs> and I was like, no way. I'm not going to put like a bunch of stuff down here that, you know, my, my book is full of writing anyways, but it's too little space. But the, the next paragraph at the bottom, the last line says... Where he writes, fans want Jesus to inspire them, but Jesus wants to interfere with their lives. That's crap! Well, yeah, especially in light of John 3.16, which just so happens to be the, the end of the passage of Nicodemus. <laughs> which, this is so fascinating to me. So hold, hold that thought if you can. So, yeah. for, so I'm reading out of the New King, the New Living Translation, which I know for some people is not literal enough, but it's sure. what I had on hand. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his son into the world to condemn it but to save it. Um, and you keep reading in there. There's no discussion here about if you are committed enough, if you are a fan or a follower. Like, it's just if you believe. Mm -hmm. I think – now, granted, that's one word in one verse, which I'm not a fan of either. Mm-hmm. <laughs> So I don't want to put too much on there, but just as a starting place, I think it's interesting that the continuation of that passage uh, just talks about belief. So my question would be, and I want to get back to your thought, is did, was Nicodemus really having a crisis of belief and he came to Jesus to clarify what was going on and to understand what he so that he could believe? I, just a thought. But I don't have to finish there, but go back to your thought. Well, no, no, I think what you've got is good, like really good. And and I think, I mean, if we want to get a little, if we can, can we get a little technical? I'm just, oh, get technical. Okay. But my thought here is that, and maybe I don't even need to go into the word. I'll take a look at the word anyways. But I think that this was a pretty big crisis because if you look in the verses preceding even even 13, uh, John 3.13, no one has ascended, I'm reading from the NRSV, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And just as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man must be, uh, so must the Son of Man be lifted up that whoever believes in him may have an eternal life. And, and the Son of Man, I think, is a, is a Daniel reference, but it's a, it's basically threatening you know, Jesus is really threatening the monotheistic uh, understanding of Israel. So, you know, when he's claiming to be the Son of God or affiliated with God or somehow like equal with God, this is this is huge. And so, for you or me, we don't we don't take it that way because that that sort of um, base understanding, even if it's not something we believe or that is part of our family tradition, it's been part of our Western historical sort of cultural heritage for hundreds of years um, for them this was shockingly new and it would have been a, a a dramatic thing to sort of accept Jesus as being one with God I mean that would be that would be heretical right you'd be you'd be that and this is why they wanted to stone him and 
do lots of bad things to him because he was uh, he was saying bad things in their minds, right? He was saying things that just didn't jive, um, didn't work. Um, when you said Dawn three sixteen, yeah. So say a little bit more about that. So mm-hmm. what? I don't know that I understand that. What was heretical about heretical that that he's on the face of the earth and he's also claiming to be God? Yeah, and that that, that any anyone or anything like he's he's a human being. They can they can see him. They can touch him, and yet he's he's claiming to be God. And and God, you know God is one, right? So the Israelite conception of God really uh, stood apart from the other ancient Near Eastern conceptions of this kind of uh, myriad of gods, you know, that might have different, there might be hierarchies and stuff, but there's loads of them. Like, you can think of Egypt. We all know about the Egyptian gods, right? There's tons of them. And um, this was the standard, whereas you've got this this monotheistic culture, and they were really, really, really definite. Uh, like, I am I am your only god, and in fact, I am the only god. All those other things that, that claim to be gods, they're, they're nothing. And then you've got and, Jesus coming in here and making this kind of claim to the, that's kind of expanding this notion, and that's that's weird. And, and so the God that they believe in is in heaven, and so for Jesus to show up on earth and say, "By the way, I'm God," yeah, is ridiculous to them. Is ridiculous to them, and, and he's also claiming to be God in addition to, like, I am the Son, He is the Father. Well, we've got no notion of this. All we've got is, you know, hear the Lord, hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God. The Lord your God is one. You know, the Shema in, in Deuteronomy six, which is basically, this is what this is. This is like the most basic conception of God, and God brought us out of Egypt, and these other things are added on to that, and are you know historical content of the faith. But you got somebody who's saying not only like I'm here in front of you and I'm God. Oh, and by the way, there's God in heaven. That's the Father and I'm the Son. Like that's just totally. That's that's bizarre to them, you know. That's at best, it's it's it's, and so you've got Nicodemus who's, um, who's acting on this, and I, I, so I guess I, I I hear what 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 he's what Kyle is saying about there's a, you know, this is quite a, quite a move on Nicodemus's part, just just to kind of enter into conversation. But I think too, like when in John. Through sixteen, uh, and uh, looking at the, it, it's it's uh, pisteo, which is the this this is the common word to to believe, right? This isn't anything fancy. This is like, I believe. It doesn't necessarily, absolutely imply some sort of action, but but the very notion in this context, in the kind of first century context where Jesus is, the the very idea that you believe is is is, is radical and groundbreaking. Which is interesting because the title of the chapter and the or the dichotomy that he seems to want to create is, well, the title of the chapter is a decision or a commitment, mm-hmm. and I'm guessing he would equate decision with believe, whereas commitment is um, kind of action. more of an outward action. Yeah. Um, which I think is in, yeah I don't know. So on page 20, or I'm sorry, on page 32, mm-hmm. he says, many people have made a decision to follow Jesus without a commit. May, I'm sorry, mm. may, many have made a decision to believe in Jesus 
without a commitment to follow Jesus. Which is interesting in the light of John 3.16 because that last part isn't there. Um, no, and, and maybe we need to kind of finesse that notion of believe because, you know, if you put believe again, if, if, I'm, if I'm right on this, and I think that there is quite a, it's quite a shocking thing to believe in Jesus. It, you know, if you're back in the first century, it's quite a shocking thing to believe in Jesus in the way he's saying, you know, I need you to believe in me. I don't think that's what we've got here for us. Hmm. Okay. I think that belief in that case is just sort of saying, oh, yeah, this is what the church is about, and this is what my uh, aunt uh, Nellie kind of thought, and, you know, I'm having this moment here at the church. I, I'm in here today, and uh, this guy's saying these things, and, you know, I, I think I better change the way I do some things. And and, 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 and then it just ends at that sort of thought, but... You know, I don't know. Which is which is funny because if you take it, if you go back to page twenty one, where he says the most important question that we've been placed <laughs> under Earth to answer is, where are we going to spend eternity? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Which, um, and you you get to decide where you spend eternity according to him, based on what you, well, I guess he would say based on what you're committed to, which opens a whole nother can of worms. <laughs> <laughs> eternal security and all that other good stuff. So I don't want to take us there. Yeah. Um, where, but go back to. Well, I got, I got hung up on this whole inspire thing. So first of all, he's got, you know, the whole, as you said, Jesus is an interferer, right? The negative implications to following Jesus. And, and, and then, you know, how has following Jesus interfered with your life? And it will always, it will always interfere. It's guaranteed on page 34. Following mm-hmm. Jesus isn't something you can do at night when no one notices. It's a 24-hour commitment that will interfere with your life. That's not the small print. That's a guarantee. <laughs> so, I... Oh. So, I mean, so if you're not being interfered with it, you're doing it wrong? See, I like, get, I mean, this gets back to his whole thing of, you know, if you're, su- if you're not suffering enough, then, you know, maybe you're not legit. If Jesus isn't interfering with you enough, well, I guess either either you're not doing it right or you're being disobedient or I don't know. It, it almost, yeah, I almost get that impression, you know, and, and this is, this is for me where it just doesn't make sense because, you know, again, it's, it's do my children interfere with my life? Well, yeah. Sure, I guess, you know, they, they take my time and, you know, sometimes I'm, I'm legitimately, you know, ticked off at, at, at them and just, just irked with the whole concept of fatherhood. Um, <laughs> you know, it's just, it's just, sure. it's, that's the way it is, right? And, and, but, but I think that's, those are the rare moments where, where something wonderful is, is stutter stepping or, you know, there's a breakdown in relationship communication or some some important aspect within the relationship somehow and uh, this is again where for me you know we go back to hey, yeah his page 21 the most important question is uh you know where are you going to spend uh where i spend eternity and and, and it's again this is we've, we've kind of taken it out of we've made we've made this kind of thing that's supposed to be you know, it does have cognitive content, right? I can I can think about it. It makes sense. There's a, there's a, for me, there's a, there's a rationality and an understandability to my beliefs. But, but that comes out of a pre, a previous 
you know, experience of God as both one who loves me more truly, more deeply than I love myself and who knows me more truly than I know myself. And it is only in that context that any of these things make sense. So, you know, I'm not, a, I'm not, it's not about reward and punishment. And it's not about going to heaven or avoiding hell. It's, it's about being in a, a relationship with, a, with an actual being with whom, you know, who, who loves me in, in a way. And, and here's where I'm going to link into the next idea. He's inspiring. I mean, that's the whole deal. That's the whole deal. Is, is, you know, there, there, there are theories of how we interpret the gospel that are called performance theories. And, and they, they do, they're not the only theories that are out there and they butt up against some other ones. But they have some incredible value. And the idea is that a Christian's relationship to the biblical text is like an actor's relationship to a play. It's, it's laying stuff out for us that we have to respond to with both creativity and with fidelity. We are creative in terms of, you know, new situations, uh, new formulations, etc., and yet faithful to some basic orientations within the text that kind of give us, um, open, open kind of vistas for us for how to see the world, better ways of living, and worse ways that we want to avoid. And how to be in relationship with God. But all of that only matters. Like you don't, not all of us just say, oh gee, look, there's a, there's an acting troupe. I'm going to go be part of it. You're part of something like that because, because it, you're, you, there's something compelling about it for you. And this is what's happening in this, you know, it's, we have interacted with God. We have interacted and somehow met God and being met by God, which inspires us. And we, in turn, in living out this text, are offering inspiring performances that hopefully will inspire others. So this whole idea of inspiration is huge. It's so necessary. And he's he's downplaying it with this sort of, you know, it's got to be interfering and it's got to be, uh, you know, commitment and, and following and all this stuff. But, but, you know, all of this comes out of joy. It comes out of, like, it, it's not, it's not only, it's not only joy, but it's not based out of duty. I mean, that whole thing in Jeremiah, this is a fantastic formulation of what it is to be, uh, I'm thinking, uh, Jeremiah 31. Um, it talks about the new covenant. You know, Israel's in exile. Things aren't working out. There needs to be renewal. There needs to be redemption. There needs to be something new and better. And, and, and the characterization, the classic characterization that's offered in Jeremiah, and it comes Right through from Deuteronomy six and kind of the and Deuteronomy with the relationship between um, the law and the heart. It, Deuteronomy, uh, or pardon me, Jeremiah thirty one and thirty three. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts. It is the law that's written upon the heart. And what does that mean? What does that mean? Does it mean? Does it mean like you're getting your ass kicked all the time? You're getting interfered with. Your life is like, oh, this is really painful and hard, or just like, oh yeah, well, I needed to have all that. I need to have that bull come in there and wreck all my good china. <laughs> like, no, that's not what it means. There's a basic, basic orientation here that, to my mind, just isn't there. Like, he's he's not he he's pushing us towards something that is more that is being more directed and guided by a sense of duty or obligation 
or by some form of sociological formation. In other words, hey, you're born in the church, this is the right way to go. Like, don't be in the church because you're born there in the right way, it's the right way to go. Be there because you want to be there. Be there because it makes sense in your head, in your heart, through your entire being to be there. You know, it's like, it's like, it's like witnessing to somebody. I don't tell people about, uh, you know, I like wine. And if I find a wine I like, and I'm in the store, and somebody's right there, I'm like, that's a really good wine. I don't know if you tried that. You know, and they, sometimes they look at me like, I'm like ah, I love that. You should, you should, if you're thinking red, you, I'll go there. You know? And, but I tell them because I enjoy it. You know, it's something that, that has been pleasurable to me and, and, and significant. And so it's the same sort of, you know, idea in terms of, uh, if you like, uh, talking to people about your faith. You talk to people about your faith because it's meaningful to you, because it's been life-changing to you, because it's significant, and because you, you know, you, you can do that in a context that's not weird. You know, some, some contexts it's just weird, right? And you, you don't do it. But this whole thing about being oriented by love, with the law that is written upon the heart, I mean, there's commitment there. But the commitment originates out of a predisposition an emotive predisposition towards God that, you know, it's not always sunny and rosy, right? It's not always, I feel God's so wonderful, blah, blah, blah. But, but that has to be there. And I think that has to be primary. And that has to be there first. Because if you come at it out of duty, you're eventually going to be this, this wooden, you know, the older brother in the, 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 um, you know, the, the parable of the, uh, the prodigal. Yeah. Well, and I wonder, I wonder maybe he develops this more in the book. I mean, maybe, I think I said this earlier, maybe he's got the chapters kind of in the wrong order here. Cause I think what he's really trying to drill into is the whole notion of cheap grace and that, you know, you can't get something for nothing. So on page 34, um, mm. he talks about, you know, the late night infomercials and, you know, wouldn't you like to retire early and, you know, get all this stuff for free. And, um, he says, how do you respond to that? How can you say no? It costs you nothing and offers you everything. <laughs> and I wonder if it, I wonder if some well-intentioned preachers have missed their calling as late night infomercial, infomercial salesmen, because many people heard a gospel presentation that went something like this. How would you like to live forever? Would you like to have your sins forgiven and have a fresh start? Do you want to spend eternity in paradise instead of burning in hell? Some take it further. Would you like to have a prosperous life? Are you ready to claim the health and wealth God has in store for you? Et cetera, et cetera. They have ordered a gospel that costs them nothing and offered them everything. And then I feel like this is kind of the punchline of his whole thing here. Mm -hmm. So in case someone left it out or forgot to mention it when they explained what it meant to be a Christian, let me be clear. There is no forgiveness without repentance. There is no salvation without surrender. There is no life without death. There is no believing without committing. And I would add, and so there's no love or truth either. Like, um, there's no. <laughs> so that may, but again, maybe he's going to develop that later in the book. I, I don't, I don't know. It just, I, I don't. Know. Maybe we're digging. Maybe I'm digging into picking apart too much what he wrote. But I. I don't know. All right. Well, I'm not going to say that. 
Because <laughs> I just can't, you know, yeah, there's no forgiveness without repentance. There's no salvation without surrender. No life without death. No believing without committing. There is none of this possible without God loving us. You know, and we've got this, we've been so stuck under some of these formulations like, uh, you know, even our questions. So, so if you, if you, if you take, uh, a Christian account of origins to be correct, um, what do we know about the beginning of, about the beginning before, before life was created? What do we know about that typically? Well, we know most of us, uh, the question that, that, that tends to get asked is how? How did God create? God created ex nihilo. We want to avoid the whole Greek uh, view of uh, primordial stuff, which has somehow kind of always been around, sitting in the corner. God's always been around. It's kind of a questionable what the relationship is there. It's not the right question. It was Augustine's question. We ran with it because it was Augustine's. Everybody loves Augustine. Wrong question. Wrong question. Interesting. The question is not how. The question is why. Why? Why did God create? Uh, I think you got it. Same reason that Jesus said, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. There is recreation. The son is coming to inaugurate the kingdom of God to offer the possibility of the law being written upon the heart. This whole process is being renewed, remade, repossibilitated out of love. That's not a change in orientation. It's the same orientation. The question, you know, so the answer to how God created, God, or why God created, God created ex amore. How? Ex nihilo, sure. Why? Ex amore, out of love. And, and, and so when I read this, this stuff on page 35, I'm like, man, yeah, you're right. Those things are all important, but they're not primary. Because if you don't have the primary thing, the other thing will fail. Because you cannot have the law written upon the heart if the heart isn't what has been transformed and is opened. Then you've just got the law. You've got the same thing the Jews had. Right? And which is not, not, you know, I don't want to go there in terms of like Luther's view and all that stuff of, of them just being like really duty bound and all that stuff. Like, I, I don't think so. I, I think he's wrong there. I think N.T. Wright is, is, is doing a better job at that stuff. And we can get into that more later. But you end up in a place where you don't, whatever you've got, you don't have the law written upon your heart. You've got it written upon your will. You know, I do these things because they're the right things to do. Or, or, or on your intellect, I do them because they're the right things to do. I do them because I must do them. You've got them written upon your will. But you don't have them written out on your heart. You know, when the law is written upon your heart, you act for the other and for yourself in a way that comes out of love and care, which doesn't see first duty. You know, certainly when you get exhausted and there's conflicts between caring for yourself and caring for the other and or caring for the other impinges on your ability to kind of, you know, act well in your life. You're up late, lots of nights. Sure. You know, duty kicks in because, because you don't feel too loving at that point. But if that's what's going on here, you know, and even the whole formulation that he's got on page 34, you know, how would you like to live forever? No, it's not about that. How'd you like to live well now? 
How'd you like things to come together now? <laughs> you know, if you come from a dysfunctional family, God does not want to leave you there. God does not want to leave you with these, with these dysfunctional understandings of relationships, of how you relate to yourself and to others and to your world. And that's going to be painful and problematic, and it's going to cost you time and money. But that's a different type of thing than what he's talking about here. He's talking about commitment that comes out of some sort of an understanding as opposed to commitment that comes to being in a position of being deeply loved and deeply known, of being affirmed deeply in who you are and critiqued, but always out of a sense of, hey, I'm loved by, by one who knows me profoundly and cares for me more than I care for myself. Huh. So... Okay, that clarifies something for me, because I was reading on 35, there is no believing without committing. And I was, I agree with that. I, well, I don't know about the, so I don't know about the word believe, but I think for myself, there is an element of commitment. And Mm -hmm. even maybe presently an element of commitment that's missing. In other words, there are different reasons why maybe I'm not ready to commit, but mm-hmm. I do believe that commitment is a key aspect. In other mm-hmm. words, any good relationship I have, there is an element, there's commitment there. And without the commitment to the relationship, the relationship tends to not flourish. Yeah. So I think there is, I think there is something to it, but I, I'm intrigued by your idea, your notion of it being, I don't know, an informed commitment or there's, it's not this brute force act of will. Okay, I will commit. No. It's, it sounds like you're saying that that it's almost um, there's something motivating the commitment as opposed to just this uh, binary. Yes, I will commit. Exactly. So he, what he's looking at, what I get, the picture of what I get him driving at is a scales, a balance, and what he's saying is, listen. If you don't get the 51% on action, you're not committed. I don't care right. what you believe. You're just a fan. You're just a fan. I, and, and my point is, love don't work at 49 and 51% ratios. It doesn't work like that. Love is like a 1,000%. It's not there at all. Now, you know... Uh, granted, there are personality. We have to look at people's personality types and all these other things. But, but I don't know. Um, it it is. It, I guess what I would say personally is that truth truth works on a on a on a on a system like a balance, you know. And you can you can add sort of information and evidence to a situ to a situation, and you can build a case to the point that you have sufficient truth you've got 51 or more percent and you say yeah you know i i really kind of believe in evolution because there's just so much evidence out there and i i'm at 51 i'm at 55 i'm at 75 i'm at 99 percent um love is a totally different economy um you know one of my favorite philosophers describes it as an economy or a way of interacting that is centered on upon superabundance. Love is more and more again. Love is lavish. 
Love is abundant. Love is delighting in. You don't get tired of that. Right? It's, and this is too where, um, let me see if I can bring this in in a way that makes sense. I'm just flipping through my, um, my thesis. So my work on this stuff. Like saying I love you, which is both an expression of our deepest love and a lover's catharsis. So lover's catharsis, the reality of being unable to ever bring the fullness of oneself for the other into words, but never tiring of trying. So the experience of love births inspiration, and is the impetus that performs us to perform. That's coming back to performing the Gospels again and again and again and again. I mean, we don't say I love you to tell the other person we love them. We're not informing them. It's a cathartic effort on our own part to bring to expression something that we can't. And sometimes you say I love you in a way that's kind of like a greeting or it's a passing something. But there are times of meeting, you know, between you and your kids, between you and your spouse, between you and your, your family, where you say the words I love you and, and you mean them so deeply and they're so insufficient. And yet you can, you, 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 you want to say them again and again because it's bringing that out. It's kind of getting close to that never quite attaining it. But it's not the frustration of saying, oh, I'm never going to say those words again because they just don't do it for me. They just don't give me what I need. you know. And there's a joy in, in, in saying I love you through various acts and things like that. But that, that doesn't satisfy it either. you know. So, yeah. Like I lost the tie into the part of the book that I was uh, trying to work with. But, uh, yeah, it's that idea, I guess, of love being, uh, it's, it's, it's like a thousand percent, you know. Um, and I don't think that that is going to strike everybody, but I think that that is something that we completely miss. And maybe a bit like, uh, maybe my argument, <laughs> this is totally uh, off the cuff here, maybe the argument is a little bit like the argument of the of the, uh, the charismatics who say, hey, you've got to have this experience of God. Ah, I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you need a, the quote-unquote gifts of the Spirit, but do you, I mean, if God is love, I don't get, I don't get that. I don't kind of like figure that with my head. It's It's got to resonate within me in some way at some time. Or what is it? I think it just remains this big question mark. And, you know, if this is core to God's being, then what does that mean about your faith if your interaction with God on the level of love is a question mark? Yeah, and I think I'd like to maybe dive deeper in a future conversation about, so what do you say to someone, though, that has never experienced that love? They've believed they've gone to church their entire lives they went to bible college bible university whatever they've gone to church their entire lives and yet period periodic basis at best they've never feel they've never felt what you're describing when you t to talk about love in the context of god i guess uh, if it's somebody who's in the church i guess the first question i'd ask them is are you happy are you happy being in that church, and why are you there? And if there's somebody who's not in the church, I would ask them the same question. Are you happy? And I would probably want to know. 
you know, if it's a if it's a conversation with with a friend and somebody that I I've got a relationship with, then uh, you know, one of the things that I'd be curious about is what are the love relationships like in your life? What what does love mean for you in your life? And uh, you know, for some people, uh, it, it means a lot, and uh, they have other places where they can connect, and I, I think that's really positive. I don't think those substitute for God. But I think that, you know, in some cases it might be that love just isn't anywhere. Or, you know, I don't use that word for anything. And, and you know, there could be some, some really profound brokenness. And on the other hand, you know, I'm sure that for a lot of people it's like, hey, there's nothing in this church. I'm just going because this is what I do. You know, and I'm afraid of, it's like, uh, <laughs> I, I'm, I'm stuck on page 21 of Kyle's book. What if it really is a heaven, there is a heaven and a hell, and where I spend eternity comes down to this one question. I don't want to go to hell. Okay, well, I don't know. Like, do you want to go to heaven enough to get out of that church? <laughs> I guess that'd be my question. Uh, it's interesting, kind of, as he closes out the chapter, um... I, which to me kind of is the undercurrent of this whole book. Are you doing mm. the right thing? He gives Nicodemus a gold star hmm. uh, at the bottom of page 37. In fact, when most others had abandoned Jesus or were hiding in fear, Nicodemus makes the great gesture of affection and devotion. Things have moved past words or of belief expressed in darkness of night. He is no longer a secret admirer. He wasn't just an enthusiastic admirer. He seems to have, he had become a follower. And I underlined that and wrote, in other words, he finally did the right thing. So, hmm. I, I don't know. Well, it's so strange to me that we're, we're I don't know, does, does he use the, does, does the author use the word love at all? Because No, in, there's no, I haven't seen it in this chapter. But, we haven't but, seen okay. it. We haven't seen it yet. And I you think see, that's, I, that was what came up in the conversation I have with another uh, person this week was, and I think. They were a third of the way through the book, but they're like, well, is there any message of love here? And I said, I'm not sure, so sure. And that's what my buddy Greg keeps raising. Well, I'm just thinking, too, as you like, we come back to Nicodemus and I'm like, OK, so this is like one of the these are some of the pivotal parts about about love. And, and how is he not? You know, in other words, what, what, what swayed Nicodemus? Where, where did Nicodemus start to get it? You know, believing and believing why. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son? You know, like that whole love piece is central. And yet he doesn't even bring it up. He doesn't even conjecture on it. Thanks for listening to the Untangling Christianity podcast. We'd love to hear your thoughts on this episode. So leave a comment on iTunes or at the website, untanglingchristianity.com slash six. We also welcome your questions, comments, or suggested future discussion topics by email. Send those to feedback at untanglingchristianity.com. Tune in next week for a new episode. Music on this podcast is made available by Kevin McLeod over at Incompetech.com and is licensed under a Creative Commons license. Thanks to Kevin for his generosity. Support him at his website by going to Incompetech.com. 
I-N-C-O-M-P-E-T-E-C-H dot com. 